So John chapter 8 is what we're going to be looking at here today. Obviously not the whole chapter, but just uh, getting ourselves started in this here. And it's a well-known passage. It's a wonderful passage, oftentimes known as the, the woman caught in adultery. And what we're going to be seeing in, in John chapter 8 is that, remember, here's a little, little Tessie who's listening the last little while. When we go into chapter 7 of John, we're entering into this kind of period of Jesus' ministry, looking at the last, how long of his ministry? Anybody remember? Last six months. Somebody got it. Well done. Last six months of Jesus' ministry. So we're, we're coming to a close here, okay? We're coming down to where Jesus, it, everything's culminating to what Jesus came to do initially, and that was to die on the cross. But what's happening is things are continuing on in his life. He's been ministering for, you know, three, almost three years now, somewhere around there. And, and the religious leaders are getting a little bit upset with the claims of Jesus, with the things that Jesus is doing. Um, remember, they're the kind of the, the bigwigs. They're the ones that, that they want everybody looking to them, going to them. And now crowds are going to Jesus. The Pharisees are feeling a little bit like, hey, wait a second, he's taking away, you know, our thing here. But again, what they were doing was not to point people to God. It was to really glorify themselves, full of pride. So there's this conflict at work right now between Jesus and the religious leaders. And in chapter 8, we really see this conflict just continuing on all the more. And what we're going to be seeing here in this kind of contrast now between Jesus and, and the religious leaders and, and really just a lot of different areas. Here's what we're going to be looking at here. First of all, verses 1 to 11, grace and law. Then we're going to look at this comparison between light and darkness, between life and death, freedom and bondage, between who Jesus is, the Son of God, and then the children of the devil. That's, that's going to hurt a little bit for some of them. Uh, and then honor and dishonor. So these are the things that we see as we go through this incredible chapter. We may only get through the first one here today, and that's fine. But this is what we'll be kind of looking at and, and focusing on here. So law and grace, or grace and law here today. And, and look at what we read there in verse 1. In fact, let me just say, because some of your Bibles might have a little footnote in there that kind of say that this section of Scripture, right from chapter 7, verse 53, all the way to chapter 8, verse 11, some of your Bibles might have a footnote in there that say that this is not in the original text. Well, just remember, first of all, that we don't have any original manuscripts of the Bible. They're all copies of, of such. And some Bibles, translations, they, they go to an older copy or what they believe is an older text. And they'll look at some of these texts and go, well, this passage is in there as well as other passages that aren't in there. But when you begin to look at the majority text, there's over 900 manuscripts that have this text in there. So we believe that this is certainly inspired scripture that this is the word of God, that this is, you know, in line with what we see elsewhere in God's word, especially with the heart of Jesus. So this is not in any contradiction. Um, it was, uh, oh, let me think here. I'll see if I wrote it down. Augustine, Augustine writes that some uh, excluded this passage in copies for fear that this passage would promote loose morals. As they look at this woman caught in adultery and the way that Jesus handled it. So there's some that believe, oh, we can't write this. We can't copy this in there. But when you look at the majority of manuscripts, this is in there. We know that this is inspired word of God. We don't have to question this, though. There's a, 
a footnote in some Bibles just to kind of put you at peace here today. All right. There's, I, I believe what we have here is the complete and full word of God, that there's no contradictions. There's no um, errors. There's nothing that we need to look at and go, well, is that really? No. We have right here the, the full word of God because God has been faithful to preserve his word over time. And I don't think there's anything that we need to question or, or wonder about. God is able, isn't he, to preserve this and to keep what he has here. And he's done just that. We'll look at verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again in the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Now, I think it's best that we take the last verse of chapter 7 as many kind of Bibles sort of really put it together and put along with this because what we read at the end of chapter 7 is that and everyone went to his own house. Remember, that was happening right after the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus gave that great message on the last, the great day of the feast that if anyone thirsts, I'm coming to me and receive living water. If you missed that message last week, I encourage you to listen to it. That's our hope for this church, for every person that we are people that are walking and flowing in that living water, that work of the Holy Spirit in us. So if you didn't catch that message last week, go online and listen to it. Um, I encourage you to do so. But Jesus gave this great message. And then it says that after that feast, that everyone went to their own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Notice that. It's kind of a sad statement. That after the feast, everybody's there. They're around Jesus, listening to Jesus. But then after the feast, everybody just goes home. They kind of settle in. They kind of get back to what's comfortable for them. They went to their own homes, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. It's, it's kind of a sad reality when everyone is ready to go settle down and leave Jesus out. You, you know it's very easy to do that, isn't it? Even for ourselves. But have you learned that, that practice uh, of just living with Jesus in every aspect of your life? More so, has your life ultimately become his life. Have you invited him in to say, Lord, I don't want to be about my life. I want to be about you, Jesus. And I want you to, to dominate everything that I'm doing. I want everything that I do to be about you. Because it's all too common to come together and, and worship Jesus as we do today. But then, you know, go home and not worry about him or think about him until we come back again and worship. Or to go and do a service for Jesus where we think, oh, I'm really active here. I'm doing a great thing. And then when that service or activity is done, we go back and we don't do anything with Jesus the rest of the time. But I pray that we're those that are saying, Jesus, I want to invite you in. I want you to be the focus of my life. I, 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 I want to just be spending all my time with you and, and in relationship with you and in, in just abiding in you. May Jesus not just have a, a place in your heart, but may he truly have your heart where everything that you do is just centered around him and in him. So here's Jesus, he's at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just about a quarter mile away from Jerusalem and the temple is on the east side there. And uh, this is the, the route that Jesus would have come walking in on the triumphal entry down the Mount of Olives. I don't know if I've mentioned this lately, but um, we're planning a trip to Israel in March. 2020, yeah. And, and we get to do that very walk up on the Mount of Olives and pass by the Garden of Gethsemane and we come into to, to the Jerusalem, and it's just a beautiful thing. So here's Jesus. So anyways, just, you know, in case you didn't know, Israel 2020, come on and join us. So there's Jesus, and maybe he's out there in the Garden of Gethsemane that's on the Mount of Olives. Maybe he's camping out there overnight, which again just kind of reminds us, thinking about that picture, just reminds us of the, 
the humility of which Jesus came to this world where he didn't come to be served, but to be a servant of all. It tells us in, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 8, verse 20, that Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's a sad reality oftentimes in Jesus' ministry. There are people that came around him, but like we saw in John 6 or John 5, oftentimes they came for what they could get from him, not just to be with him. And I pray that that's the case for us. And notice here, Jesus now, it's early in the morning in verse 2 that he came again into the temple. You know, Jesus lived this life where he was a man that oftentimes would get up early in the morning. We see that repeatedly throughout scripture, that early in the morning he would go and take time to get away with the Lord and pray to his father. Now, a lot of us don't like that word early. It's a very uncomfortable word for some, right? Some of you are very natural with it. I don't like you people very much because it's not so natural for me. I, I, I want to be that person that gets up early. I try to be, but it's not natural for me. But there's something wonderful and helpful about starting our day with Jesus. Because it's in that time before we get going to work or school or whatever it might be, before we're worried about getting things prepared, where we just get up and we, we etch away that time where we say, Jesus, before I'm focusing on anything else, I want to focus on you. I want to spend that time in communion with you. And there's something wonderful that takes place as we just start our day with Jesus. Jesus himself did that with his heavenly father. And if he was doing that, how much more do we? But it's that time where we can just really press in and focus with him without the distractions of the day. It reminds me of that story that I've shared before, but there was a family gathering and, and, and everybody's around. Well, the grandfather of the family had lost this important family heirloom watch. And everybody went into mad panic because we got to find this watch. Everybody's looking at our couch cushions and looking all around. They couldn't find it. They were a little bit sad. Well, everybody went to bed that night. The next morning, there's little Johnny. Comes to his grandpa and he says, Grandpa, I found your watch. And everybody's excited. Oh, that's incredible. They said, Johnny, how did you find it? Little Johnny said, I just got up early in the morning before everybody else did. And I listened for the ticking. You see, that's oftentimes when we can really just hear from the Lord. Without the distractions, before we've gotten busy with the rest of the stuff, where we just get alone with the Lord. And say, Jesus, I want to spend time in communion with you. I want to hear from you. I want to know you more. I want you to begin to just set this day here now for me. And he does that. And so early in the morning, here's Jesus comes into the temple. And no doubt when Jesus is there, that's where you want to be. And so people are gathering around him now. And he sat down and taught them. That was the traditional kind of way. When rabbis would gather, they would sit and everybody would stand around them and, and listen. I think we should try that one Sunday. What do you guys think? I'll just sit down. Pull up a nice lazy boy, maybe, and everybody can just stand and be, just see how it feels. Oh, maybe not. Okay. I thought that'd be fun. But now, this is where the story really heats up now for us. Look at verse 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher... This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? 
This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now, here we see, as I mentioned, this disdain of the religious leaders just intensifying towards Jesus. By religious leaders here, we're identified that they're the scribes and the Pharisees. These were a group of people that, that made up part of the Sanhedrin, this religious body of 71 people. And so, uh, but there are many more Pharisees as well. But these Pharisees and scribes, these are the, these religious leaders, these are the people that others will go to for spiritual kind of counsel and, and understanding in the law of Moses. And so they come now and, and they just, they're not interested in hearing from Jesus and really kind of listening to how he would do things so that they can learn. They're always looking here just for a way to trap Jesus. And that becomes very evident that that's exactly the plot. Well, not only does it say that here in verse 6 that they were testing him, but notice this here. They bring this woman, they say, that's caught in adultery. This all seems like an elaborate setup. Are they really concerned with upholding their law? Or are they just looking to try and trip up Jesus? Because here's the deal. If they're looking to just uphold the law, then where's the man? It takes two to tango, Right? Where's the man in this? But they don't bring the man. They just bring the woman. How'd they discover that? Because adultery, not that I have any idea, but typically that's something that's going to be done in, in secret. This is not something that's easily seen or, or done in a way where other people are going to catch somebody in the act. Is this something that's been a setup? Is this even somebody from their own members here that they've used as a pawn here now to to draw this woman in to catch her in this act it all seems like an elaborate setup where these pharisees and scribes are all going about some shady business all in the attempts of simply to try to trap jesus now the plan of these religious leaders is to get jesus to either show compassion on this woman and if Jesus does, and they, they know that he's been, you know, called the, the friend of sinners, they, they know that's typically the move he's going to make, where he's going to show compassion to this woman. And if he does, well, they're going to be able to say, well, listen, you're not upholding the law. The very law of Moses in our very word that says that this woman should be stoned to death. It was a, a sin that should result in capital punishment. But then, if he condemns this woman, then they can say he's a hypocrite. You're not, you're not this man that's really all about grace and truth, like you said, or, or a friend of sinners. You're a hypocrite. And he's going against Roman law. Because here's the thing you have to understand. The Jews had their right of capital punishment taken from them by the Romans years earlier. So they couldn't go ahead and, and enact this kind of law as they once used to. And in fact, we don't have much recording of, of somebody actually being caught in adultery and being stoned to death. Because again, that would have been a very hard thing to do. So either way, these religious leaders think they got Jesus trucked. If he answers this way, we're going to have something against him. We'll say, listen, this guy doesn't hold his ground. He's a hypocrite. Or if he goes this way, then we'd say, ah, he's not one of us. He's not following the law. And... He's going against Rome. Let's go and tell the bigwigs about him. So they think they've got Jesus trapped now in all of this. 
Now, it's true that adultery was something that was punishable by death. Leviticus 20, verse 10 says that the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It's repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. So right there, the adulterer and the adulteress, both of them shall be brought and they shall be put to death. So Jesus is put in an awkward position here. But it says that he said nothing, pretending to not even hear them. And he writes on the ground. That's so cool. Now, we're not sure exactly what Jesus wrote on the ground. There's been a lot of speculation, a lot of people have tried to say this is what it is. We don't know for sure. Here's some thoughts about what it, it could have been. And I'll leave it with you. We don't know for sure. But somebody that he may have begun to write down the secret sins of all those that were coming to test him. All those that were accusing this woman, as he begins to write down in the dirt all the things that they've done. In fact, Psalm 90 verse 8 says, You have said our iniquities before you are secret sins in the light of your countenance. Could you imagine that happened to you? Could you imagine if you're there and all of a sudden things start getting written where you're like, Oh boy, see that? Oh man, how did he know about that? Well, he knows. Everything is already brought before him. Jesus knows everything about you already. Nothing is hidden from him. And we need to live that way, understanding that. And when we sin, we sin against God who sees it all. And interestingly, this is the only place that we have recorded in Scripture of Jesus actually writing anything down. But we know this finger of God has been active before. It says very clearly that he wrote with his finger in the dirt. But this finger of God has been active before. Exodus 8, 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. Exodus 31, 18. And when he made an end of speaking with him on, the, on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Interesting now. Here's Jesus down in the dirt. Perhaps he's writing now the Ten Commandments out. Perhaps he's writing and reminding them, listen, adultery is only one of those commandments. There's nine more that you know. How are you doing with the rest of those? How are you living in those? And perhaps a reminder for these people that he's the very author of the law. This isn't the law of Moses. It's the law of God. And God wrote that, first of all, with his finger on stone tablets. But now Jesus is writing this on the ground to show I'm truly the author of the law. Because my father and I are one. I'm the giver of this law. I know this better than anybody else does. But now, perhaps if it's the Ten Commandments, they're starting to see all these other things and realizing, man, how am I doing with the rest of these? Because it's so easy for us, isn't it, to kind of overlook our faults and focus in on the faults of others. Didn't Jesus talk about that when he says, you know, why are you trying to remove the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a stinking two by four hanging out of yours? You're worried about those other things and you can't even, you're failing to even see what you've got to do with yourself, how you need to deal with those things in your life. And, and again, as that law is being exposed, we realize that, man, we can look at parts of that and go, oh yeah, look at how bad you're doing. You're not doing that very well. But yet, you know, James 2 verse 10 says that 
Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of it all. These Pharisees probably felt very good about themselves thinking, I've not committed adultery. But what about the rest of it? Are you upholding that? Because if you just break one part of it, it says, oh, you've broken it all. So this finger of God that wrote the law down on stone tablets, it's the same finger that's writing in the dirt. And maybe Jesus is just, is just showing them again that he's the rightful author of the law. He's the one that brought it all together. He's the real lawgiver. So whatever Jesus was writing, we're not sure. Maybe he wrote out Exodus 23.1. Says, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Maybe as a way of convicting them of what they're doing right now, as they're conspiring together at the expense of this woman, just to fulfill their desire of bringing Jesus down, being that unrighteous witness. Props, he was just doodling, just killing some time, making them kind of think about what they're doing. We don't know what's really going on. Another idea, and this is interesting, is that it's in connection with what we looked at last week. Jeremiah 17 verse 13 says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. See, this is happening just a day after Jesus stood up on the last day of the feast and proclaimed, is anyone thirsty? I'm come to me. And we see that living water pouring out of them. But now reminding some of them that they've forsaken the very fountain of living waters. And they're going to be written in the earth. Perhaps he's reminding them of that verse. And now they're sitting in their own shame with their names written in the dirt. We don't know exactly what's going on here. But Jesus is at work here. And what he wrote is not of utmost importance. What we see is Jesus showing real restraint and calm and not quickly responding. Because he could have confronted the religious leaders for their conduct. He could have exposed their devious plot. He could have condemned the woman for her sin. But Jesus stoops down and calmly writes on the ground. I can just imagine this woman getting dragged into the midst of Jesus and just even tossed on the ground. Perhaps she's sitting there in a heap trying to cover her shame and her embarrassment. And yet, as she's sitting down with everybody looking at her, what does Jesus do? He gets down and begins to run there, comes to her level. He begins to meet her where she's at. Jesus comes alongside her and comforts her. Shows incredible compassion for this woman. He identified with this woman in her condition and in her position. What an incredible picture that is. Of that loving compassion and grace of our Savior. He just bends low. Just as this woman had been. And he comes to her level. And it says there at the end of verse 6. As though he did not hear. He just kind of doesn't. He doesn't entertain, you know, the, the plot of the, the, the religious leaders. He doesn't, he doesn't dialogue with them on this. It's as though he's saying, listen, I don't care what they're saying. I care about you. And I'm here to touch your life as he begins to minister to this woman. And that's what Jesus desires to do for each and every one of us. Because understand, we're all in the same position as this woman was. Because none of us are clean 
or innocent of guilt. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus wants to come alongside you and pick you up from that place of of shame and guilt. Listen, you're either caught in your sin today or you can be caught in the glory of God's grace. We identify this passage so often as someone caught in adultery. Well, today I want to look at and emphasize the reality that this woman was caught in grace. As she began to see Jesus and what he can do for her, what he did do for her. Read on in verse 7, it says this. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. See, Jesus is always so masterful in how he deals with the critics, how he deals with those that are trying to stir up controversy and conflict. Because right when someone thinks they have him trapped, he flips it around and he turns the table on them. I think that's so awesome. I, I, I don't like being in the hot seat, which is why I just desire to follow Jesus and live in him. But these people aren't interested in that. And now they think they've got him trapped, but now the tables are turned on them. And it's not that Jesus is trying to turn the heat up on these guys, but Jesus is always looking to present the actual reality of what's going on. So here's what Jesus does. And notice this. This is good. Notice that he doesn't excuse her sin. He doesn't look at this woman and go, oh no, it's okay. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. He doesn't excuse her. He's not saying that she doesn't deserve this, but he simply says that whoever's without sin, go ahead and throw out that first stone. So he gets these people now to look not at her shortcomings, but to look at their own. He says, where are you at? Are you righteous? Are you holy? Are you true? If you're pure, if you're without sin, then go ahead, throw that first stone. Just as it was written in their law that whoever was the accusers of this person, whoever were the witnesses of that, they would be the ones that would throw the first stone. So Jesus puts it on them. Who wants to throw that first stone? And let it be those that are perfectly pure themselves, without sin. Gets their eyes off of her shortcomings and onto their own. And that's exactly what we need to be quick to do ourselves. Because like I said, we find it so easy to see the faults in others. Uh, if we're just true with ourselves today, isn't that the case? Don't you, don't you oftentimes find the faults in others so easy and yet overlook the ones that are in your life and think, oh, I'd never do that. I would never do that. Well, let's look at some of the things that you do do and know that that's not always great. But we're so, we're so prone, it's just kind of our human nature to look at everybody else as worse or look at ourselves as better. I would never do that. I would never do what they're doing. Look at how they're handling it. Oh man, terrible. But we need to look at ourselves and, and honestly deal with our own heart and go, what areas do I fall short in? What areas do I not really have a handle on that I fall short in? I need to look at that, not worry about others. That's the Lord's job. Let him bring that conviction. I need to deal with myself. 
Do we consider that because of our sin, we deserve death? Just like these people were, were claiming about this woman. Because of our sin, we deserve death. Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And we've racked up quite a bill. Right? we got quite a list. See, we don't deserve this, this love and forgiveness from Jesus. But he did it all by his grace. See, mercy is not, not getting what we deserve. We deserved death and hell. That's what we deserve because of our guilt before God. But in his mercy, he spares not. But grace now is getting that which we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. We, we don't deserve the love of Jesus. We don't deserve to enjoy life in him and life eternal. But that's his grace that steps in. His mercy covers over what we deserve, that penalty of death. He covers over that by his mercy. And in his grace, he comes along and he says, I, I don't want to just spare you. I want to give you life. Life abundantly. Life to the full. See, the only reason you're still here today is because of the grace of God. So don't start to look down on others as though you're better than them or, or more holy. Be thankful that you've simply received grace and that you've been spared from God's wrath. We're all in that category. All of us are on level plane based on that. Colossians 3.13 says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. It always needs to be what's driving us, realizing that and we've been given such wonderful grace and forgiveness by Jesus and how I need to exercise that to others rather than complaining or pointing the finger. Well, look at what happened here, verse 9. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Again, Perhaps they're seeing their own sin written down on the ground or being convicted by whatever Jesus was doing there. They begin to walk away. They're cut to the heart realizing that they have no place in throwing that stone. And then it says Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. How wonderful that is. Jesus covered her disgrace with his grace. He levels the field here. Everybody's gone their way, except that woman who's now standing, standing in the presence of Jesus. Don't you love what Jude 24 says that, well, let me read this to you because I just want to get this right. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. One day we're going to stand in the presence of Jesus where God isn't going to look at you and your faults. He will see you in the righteousness of Jesus for those that have put their trust in him. Are you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus today? This woman is lifted up, standing now in the grace of Jesus. And Jesus Stands up and looks around and everyone's gone. Almost sarcastically, he says, hey, where did all your accusers go? Man, they're in a hurry to leave, aren't they? 
And Jesus says these most wonderful words of her, uh, to her, neither do I condemn you. Now again, Jesus isn't dealing with sin loosely here. He never said, all is well, you're okay now. He did, however, show mercy and grace and say that he does not condemn her. What about the Mosaic law and the death penalty that needed to be issued? Well, Jesus knew that the price and the penalty for that sin would indeed be paid and paid in full because he would pay it on the cross. As he'd go to the cross and hang there for your sin and for mine, he would take the wrath of God, the judgment of God for the sin of the world and he would pay the price for it. He put, Jesus put himself and the cross between this woman and her sin. He did not come to judge us of sin, but to save us from sin. Aren't you glad for that today? Because again, the reality is that we were all guilty of sin, but Jesus, by his mercy and grace, wiped the slate clean. We no longer stand condemned. Romans 8 verse 1 says that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those of you that have put your trust in Jesus, there's now no condemnation. And the worst condemnation that we experience is simply from us or listening to the enemy because the enemy is there wanting to condemn you of your sin, of your wrongs, of your shortcomings and remind you of all the faults that you've done. But that's not of the Lord because the Lord says, there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus today? Have you placed your life in his hands? Have you said, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I'm putting my trust in you. Because if you've done that, you become a child of God, forgiven of sin, no longer condemned. Praise the Lord for that. I thought that could get an amen, but you're sleeping. Okay. Come on, people. All right. Workshop on clapping and a workshop on amen. All right. We'll do that. Listen, I, I, and oh, we need to understand that because we so often, and it's sad when I see Christians walking in condemnation, walking around like, oh, I'm such a wretch. I'm, I'm such a failure. And I want to say, yes, you are. But it's covered by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, who died for your sin and rose again, that you might experience that forgiveness and life in him to where you don't have to be condemned any longer. Stop looking at what you're doing wrong and look at what Jesus did right for you. That's enough. Neither do I condemn you. But Jesus says, go and sin no more. He's not just letting you off the hook saying, that's all good. No. You need to repent. Turn from your sin. No longer decide to live in it. It doesn't mean that she's going to be sinless and perfect. But he says, start to walk in that repentance. Where he said, I'm going to turn from this and I'm going to turn to Jesus and live in him now. Go and sin no more. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and we want to just take some time here today where we can thank the Lord. We can respond to the Lord. I'm going to have all you stand today and we're going to take some time and what we want to do in our services here and and we try to do this at times but oftentimes minimal time but... I want to take some time. We're just going to sing a couple songs just in closing here. And I'm going to have the prayer teams 
just available in the front right now. There'll be some in the back. And we just want to make our times at the end of our services opportunity of ministry and prayer. You guys can stand. Ministry and an opportunity of prayer. I know everybody here, listen, the reality is everybody here, we could all use prayer. I, I need prayer all the time. I hope you're praying for me. I'm praying for you guys, but we need prayer. And, and if you're here today as we begin to worship, just make your way to the front or you can head to the back and there'll be people here to pray with you and for you. And, and just take this time to respond to the Lord and don't be embarrassed about coming up because again, we all need it. We all need it. And maybe you just want to come and sit in the front and just spend time with the Lord, maybe on your knees. Just feel free to do that. Let this be just that place of, uh, of altar where we just bring these things to the Lord. And maybe you've been struggling with condemnation and guilt. Understand it's forgiven. Thank the Lord for that. Seek the Lord. Give your life to the Lord. Maybe you're here and you haven't given your life to the Lord before. You don't know what, what it means to be a Christian. It means that you recognize your sin. And you recognize what Jesus did for you, dying on a cross to forgive you, to make you new and forgive you of your sin, give you new life in Him. It's simply by putting your trust in Him, it's by grace you're saved, through faith, not of yourselves, no, not of works. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to do that. So we're going to worship. Let this be just a time of response, waiting on the Lord, ministry time, prayer time, and so let's go to the Lord here.